So today I have the pleasure of interviewing uh, my friend and colleague Catherine Wagner, who is a, um, a social worker. We have had the um, opportunity to work together in a number of situations over the years, but this is really something you've been doing for a long time, helping people with a wide variety of issues from eating disorders to trauma to um, issues for new moms and, and the topic we're going to talk about today, which is violence against women. Um, so wanted to thank you for being willing to come in and do that and um, wonder if you could if you could talk a little bit about that some of the um, experience you've had working in the area of violence against women well thank you for having me mm -hmm. um, I started working on the sexual assault domestic violence treatment team in Kitchener in um, 1993 Wow. Could that be true? No. I'm not that old. No. If you if you <laughs> met Kathy, you would not believe that she started working there in 1993. I did. And I uh, have worked there at the Cambridge Hospital and at St. Mary's Hospital since then. Um, and at the beginning of the services, we only did sexual assault um, services, at, but it has evolved over time with funding to include domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about who is likely to be the victim of uh, domestic violence or sexual assault? It really can be anybody. Um, in our area, because we have a college and two universities, we tend to, just by our population, get a lot of uh, more younger people, but that's not the case with all of the centers, the treatment centers across Ontario. It depends on their population in their city. Um, but we have a wide range from, we've had uh, babies, toddlers, all the way up to elders, a lot of elder abuse now uh, coming um, to the hospital. And it can be anybody, male, female, we, we have seen a wide range. Which is, um, which is sad and scary for me to, to hear that, you know, pretty much anybody could be a victim. But I think also um, maybe challenges that myth you know, that it's going to be uh, some 18-year-old girl who just doesn't know how to get herself out of the relationship with a possessive boyfriend, right? And that it's not limited to that. No, no, not at all. So, not looking for a strict definition by any means, but, but what are some of the things that constitute domestic violence? Primarily at the hospital, I see people who have had physical or sexual abuse because other situations, they might go to a, an outpatient center, or their family doctor, uh, they might talk to a trusted friend or a counselor at the school. So the people that I see at the hospital are, are have really suffered some physical damage but might have other kinds of abuse too. I think for a long time there have been a number of um, stigmas or myths or misconceptions that might stop people from coming in, um, even when they are like physically injured. Um, have you encountered that? Do you? Oh yes, absolutely. Can you talk about what some of those are? I would say every single person I see does not want to be there, and they have had to overcome some of the myths or beliefs that they have learned over their life to allow themselves to get there. And sometimes they do that by the help of a family member or a friend that actually say, you know what, you need to get yourself some support, you need to get services, I'm going to take you there. Um, but they would have had to overcome that very first step of telling someone. And oftentimes people think if I don't talk about it, then it will just go away. I won't say anything to anybody, nobody has to know this, I'll just forget about it and over time it will be fine. So that, right from the start, 
is a problem because we find that er the earlier people get some uh, counseling, the quicker they can uh, feel better, the quicker they can make some inroads into the healing, um, bearing it and not saying it anything to anybody more often than not means it's going to take longer to recover. Mm -hmm. So that, that myth alone, they have to overcome and to actually speak to someone about it. Okay. okay. That's the first myth that, that someone has to get over. What are some other beliefs that even the person might have? Like not mm -hmm. just, you know, the stigmas that are put on them by others, but what are some of the other distorted beliefs that the person might have? One very common one is I deserved it. I provoked it, I did something wrong to bring this into my life, I acted wrongly or I, I started it in some way and uh, with respect to sexual assault what we always say to people is I should be able, my daughter, my friend, anyone in this community should be able to go out and party, have a good time, if you need to, you want to get completely drunk, that's totally fine. You should still be able to be safe in your community. And just because you're out at a party doesn't mean you are, quote, asking for it, unquote. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, and when we do public education, we always make sure to say only an enthusiastic yes means yes. Mm -hmm. Everything else means no. I love that. Mm -hmm. Only an enthusiastic yes means mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. That is an excellent way to think of Uncertainty it. Uncertainty means no. Um, Drunkenness means you cannot give consent. If you're beyond a certain level of being able to understand what the implications are, you cannot give consent, and that's not an enthusiastic yes. Mm -hmm. If somebody came for um, treatment, how do you help them to challenge that stuff? Is that they're responsible? Mm -hmm. um, usually I would say, is this how you had hoped your day would go? This mm -hmm. isn't something that you were hoping for today, I'm guessing. <laughs> and this isn't something you would want for your fa your friends or family members. And um, when they when it's someone else, they can often relate to it easier than their own self. Mm -hmm. And um, usually they can say, and, and using a bit of humor, saying, oh, really, this is, I never thought I would be here in a million years. And this is not something that... I, I can see that it's not something that I wanted to happen today. Right. And so you just, you sort of help them see it kind of from an outsider's eyes, yes. right? If mm -hmm. you weren't in this personally and blaming yourself or trying to make it go away, mm -hmm. if it happened to a friend or a family member, you might be like, oh, that was horrible. Mm -hmm. And of course mm -hmm. it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have actually been in situations where family members have said, well, you went out with this person that you didn't know, or you met him on the internet, or it's it's a stranger, really, because you just met him in your dorm room or whatever at a party, and had family members say, well, what did you think would happen? You were drinking, you were with a stranger, what did you think would happen? Well, no one thinks that's going to happen. Right. That's right. They don't think that's going to happen. They think they're going to have a party, they think they're going to have fun, they're going to have a great evening out, and that is not what they had seen in their future for that evening. But family members will still say that. Mm -hmm. I've seen that several times. Which is so sad, right? Because so then somebody overcomes that first obstacle you were talking about in terms of speaking up, mm -hmm. and the response they get only adds to their shame mm -hmm. or adds to their mm -hmm. sense of responsibility, um, which may be why it's so important to come and talk to a professional yes. um, who, who isn't going to take that position with mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Because then I can say... Well, that's not what they thought would happen. What they thought would happen was that they would meet a new friend, that they would have a great time, that they would enjoy a, a nice evening out, 
and uh, nobody wants this to be the end result of their evening being in the emergency department being tested for sexually transmitted infections. Right. That's not how anybody starts out the evening. Right. You know, that um, I think that's such a, a great and direct way to put it. Like, this isn't what you were intending for. Somebody finds themselves in that situation. There's this resource they can go to. Can you talk a little bit about that? What, what could someone expect if they did come into the hospital um, and they've either um, been the, the victim of violence or sexual assault specifically? You mentioned a questionnaire. What else happens? If it's sexual assault... Usually people are concerned about pregnancy and infection. Mm -hmm. And um, so we offer them medication for both of those things if they want that. Mm -hmm. They're also concerned about um, HIV or they just want to talk with, to us about do they want to make a police report. We can tell them what to expect process. Sometimes they want to think about it. Sometimes they want to consult with a detective. They... Um, want to gather more information, we set that up for them. And sometimes they know they want to report it and they want to go straight to the forensic evidence collection. So we can also do that for them, which is called a sexual assault evidence kit. And we collect forensic evidence from their body that the police can use for identifying a perpetrator. And, um, and just a reminder here, um, this is Candy McNeil and I'm talking with Catherine Wagner. We're talking about um, violence and, and sexual assault. We're talking about it um, and treatment options here in Ontario, but for other places across the country where you're hearing this, um, I, no doubt there will be resources in your area as well. And at the end of the show, if this has applied to you, um, please feel free to go to my website, which is uh, whatseatingyou.com and there is going to be a link to all sorts of resources. So those here in our local area, but also province-wide and countrywide, because I do think this is an issue that's, that's getting more attention, as it should, that people are becoming more aware about. Mm -hmm. um, it's helpful to know, like, so there'll be somebody with you. There's a whole range of services, so you don't have to know walking in, you know, well, if I go and I say anything, the police are going to get involved. Like, no, if you no. don't want that, that may not be the case. The only case where that does happen uh, automatically, we're required to, is if it's a domestic violence situation where there's children in the home who experienced that assault. So they were in the room, they saw what happened, or they heard what happened, they were in the home. When it occurred, we are obligated to report that to Family Children's Services, and they would follow up with that. Okay. Make sure the child's safe. Sure. And and that's a reasonable precaution, definitely. But it's important for someone to know if, mm -hmm. if they're coming in to talk. But if it's a, young, <clears throat> a person that doesn't have any children, and they come in and they are in a domestic abuse situation, it's not a given that they would involve police. That's totally their choice if they want to make a report. We would give them the most information that we have available of what they could expect. And um, and that can be anything from they might want to apply for a peace bond, they might want to go through police for a restraining order, or they might just want some outpatient counseling. And so we would set them up with that. Sure. Um, I wonder, just going back for a second to the idea of some of the, the stigmas or the myths, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about has the feel of like blame the victim. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm doing air quotes for those of you who can't see, but you know, blame the victim. And I'm I'm just wondering in your in your personal opinion, like why does that hold on? Why are we prone to blaming the victim as opposed to putting the responsibility on the person who actually pushed them down the stairs or the person who had sex without consent? What what do you think about that in our culture? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and 
don't write this, don't put this on here, but it pisses me off. I have no idea. I don't know why people are so readily willing to accept responsibility for someone else's violence. Mm -hmm. It just baffles my mind. I really don't understand it. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, very frequently in intimate partner relationships, they feel blamed, maybe because the other person blames them or because they try so hard to to make it go away and they can't. Mm -hmm. Um, They think they must be doing something wrong. And I often recommend to people to read Lundy Bancroft's book called Why Does He Do That? Because as soon as you read the first couple chapters, you will realize all the myths in society that there are about victim blaming and and why they're completely false. Hmm. Actually, I have not read that myself, so oh. I will, and I'll also put um I'll put a link to that on my website I will give you as well. Happy to take with you. That would be great. I would <laughs> I would love to. It's actually. a great book. Mm-hmm. 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 Because I I think that um when we're whenever we're trying to bring about like the end of um, stigmatizing or really like unfair judgments. This is the one that I hear people who who have come for counseling and tell me years after the fact, mm-hmm. you know, this happened. I, I was abused at home physically or sexually or I was abused in a relationship physically or sexually, verbally and I didn't tell anyone and we talk about why and there really is that sense of like a profound sense of somehow this reflects badly on me, mm-hmm. not on the person who did this to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, it's a lot of work to try and help somebody see this isn't you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not responsible for this. Um, and I would love to know how we could, as a culture, go about trying to change that idea. Um, are there things, you talked about public education. Are there things that, y- that you do or that your organization does to try and... Um, set people straight about those kinds of misconceptions? Mm-hmm. There, are, there are some public education programs. The Sexual Assault Support Center also does a lot of work um, in terms of public education and trying to get the word out there. A lot of work with high school students and mm-hmm. going into the high schools and talking with people about relationships and um, trying to get the dynamics around abuse, um, the education about that to people before they get into relationships so that they are armed with some information before they start mm-hmm. and, and maybe head down a, a path of relationships that are going to be bad for them. Actually, I love that idea because I do think that sometimes um, if you don't know ahead of time, by the time you realize, it is easy to think, well, if I was going to say something, I should have said something sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly um, have encountered that sometimes when I'm talking with people about sexuality, right? And they really don't know much about it. And they're like, well, if I was going to say no, I should have said no, you know, before I took my shirt off. Or I should have said no before we got to this stage of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Well, that would be great if you knew the stages of intimacy. <laughs> then, mm-hmm. then maybe mm-hmm. you could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you even knew how to say no. Right. Sometimes that has to be a taught skill. Sometimes people grow up not knowing how to say no. Right. Um, actually, there's a new book out just came out this week called The Power of No. Oh. And being able to say no. Right. And uh, be clear about what it is you don't want, where, where your boundary is about what you don't want and how to say no. Mm-hmm. Amazing to me that sometimes people can be completely competent and confident in one area of their life and in another area of their life be suffering extreme abuse. Hmm. And uh, somehow they are not able to be assertive in one part of their life. 
and it can go back to earlier messages and what they learned or what they saw in their family or uh, an earlier trauma ex experience that they're just reliving over and over but in just one area. I can think of a woman who uh, had two young children and had a wonderful marriage, had a wonderful family, very supportive, very loving, but was being bullied constantly by her employer. Oh. And, she, and it crossed the line into sexual harassment and she was doing everything she could and using all the skills she was using in other parts of her life but she really couldn't deal with it in the employment situation. And it was really an isolated huh. isolated case. So isn't that interesting that that maybe also flies in the face of a myth that it's sort mm -hmm. of like a, a globally weak person mm -hmm. or somebody, you know, if, if someone's struggling with this at home, you'd also see it at work or you'd also see it at school. And even me thinking that, right, that like maybe there'd be mm -hmm. overlap. But you saying like, no, there's somebody who could seem like they, they really could be managing their life very well in all these areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But here, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. it's different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or that uh, assertiveness might, you would think assertiveness might be a theme in all areas of their life. But I've seen so many people that it's that's not the case. They have one situation where they feel like they can't say no, or they it might be in a marriage where they feel like they can't uh, say no sexually. And actually, the law has only been changed recently in this country so that it, marital rape is on the books for uh, indictable offense. So uh, society's been slow to catch up with that, but. Um, can be completely competent and functioning at a very high level in many areas of their life, except for this one situation. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so again, I also wonder if that um, makes the person who maybe is suffering think, well, nobody would believe me because Absolutely. I'm so good in all these other areas. Yeah. Yeah. Who would think nobody that? Nobody would believe that. Their friend, and that leads to the isolation. Nobody would believe it. My family won't believe it. My friends won't believe it. They just would be shocked if they knew what was actually happening. Right. And that's one of the things we do right away when someone comes into hospital is say to them, you need support and we, we are here for your support, but is there anyone else that you could call? Do you have a friend? Do you have a, a sibling? Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a friend from school? Someone that you can call so that they can be there to support you when we're not there right. and um, get them connected and, and help them to find the courage to actually tell someone. Sure. So on that note, Catherine, are there things that um, you would encourage a family member or a friend to do if someone does come to them and, and says, like, look, I've, I'm in a bad situation, um, or, or even if they suspect it, if they haven't been told, but somebody they know really is seeming to have a lot of bruises, or um, how does a family member or friend help? I think the most important thing is to say to them, they really need to hear clearly, I believe you. Mm -hmm. Whatever you say to me, I believe you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to prove it. I don't have to see a bruise. I don't have to be there to hear the argument. Whatever you say, I believe you, and I'll try to find a way to help you. Mm -hmm. And that's so important for someone to come forward to be believed sure. um, because they can't believe it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so to have someone say to them, are you sure that happened? Are you sure you're recalling that correctly? Or how could you remember because you were pretty drunk? Even if, and we often have, if it's amazing how many people will come in and say, you know, I really cannot remember, but I know I don't feel right. right. I know something is wrong with me. I know my body and I know that it doesn't feel right today. Right. So um, we have a protocol now for um, 
uh, we call it DFSA, which is Drug Facilitated Sexual Assault, that if someone feels like they have been assaulted but they can't recall and think they may have been drugged in some way, mm -hmm. uh, that we can test their, their blood and urine for substances that they didn't willingly take. Right. So uh, if they tell their friend, I know that something happened, I don't feel right, and they, the friend uh, brings them to the hospital, we can test for that. Now, now, there are some things that get out of your system really quickly, but there are some things that are, are lasting that we can identify, and we send that result, the uh, blood and urine to Toronto, and they test it and let us know. Wow. So that idea of having someone who believes you enough yes. to say, mm -hmm. let's get you to the hospital, mm -hmm. let's, let's get you to talk to someone, um, that in itself is hugely helpful. Huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and very important for the step on the road of recovery sure. to be believed. I can see how um, the family member or friend might be a little traumatized to hear this, mm -hmm. that this happened to someone that they cared about. Let's say it's your roommate, you know, who comes home, or it's your daughter who, who comes and tells you this, or, um, you know, you're, you're a co-worker that, like, you're pretty good friends with, and you just think you're out for a casual lunch, and he tells you, like, ah, things aren't what they seem at home. But that could be a little bit hard for the person hearing it. Mm -hmm. What kinds of supports would you recommend that someone seek out for themselves if they are the family member or friend of someone who's experienced violence? There's a lot of great information online. If you type in, even on, on a search engine, uh, sexual assault, family member and friend support, you can get a lot of resources and good information okay. of what would be helpful. But the most important thing is to believe them from the start and to get help for yourself if you feel you need to because that can trigger things from your own life mm -hmm. um, and to set up an agreement with how you will be able to be helpful because mm -hmm. some things might just be too much right. it might be too hard to see the bruises it might be too hard to hear the uh, intimate details about it and but you might be able to babysit their children or you might be able to take them out for supper or go to the movies or provide support in other ways right. so even if you can't um, be available to hear the details of it. Uh, you can hopefully help them to find counseling to help them with that part, but help them in whatever way you can. Sure. I think sometimes people try to help by minimizing it, by saying, oh, it's not so bad, or I don't need to see it, it's, it's okay, and uh, let's really not even talk about it because that probably makes it worse for you. And um, I, can, I can say what a powerful intervention it is when someone comes in and does show or tell what's really happening to someone that is able to, to hear it or see it. And how powerful it is for the person to respond there in, in an authentic way and say, oh my goodness, I think I might throw up. Mm -hmm. Or oh my goodness, that's terrible, I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. To have someone react like that really legitimizes how much pain they are actually in and how terrible it really is. Right. Um, and one of the things that we offer as part of the services um, at the hospital is we can document or we can photograph whatever the injuries are so that um, a couple days later if you say you know what it really wasn't that bad I'm sure it's okay I'm sure I can go back we can show you no it's really not okay right. this is this is the the damage that we were able to see we were able to identify here's a picture if you need to still see it right. how terrible it really was and it's not it, it might heal on the skin surface but it doesn't heal 
emotionally for a long time. Absolutely. Um, in therapeutic terms, we sometimes call that witnessing, right? That yes. you're just there to witness mm -hmm. sometimes. And that can be visually seeing something if that's not going to be worse for one or both parties. And also that part of, of authentically hearing, mm -hmm. of actually being able to be with someone in their pain mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to thanks for telling me you know I'm glad you're getting help mm -hmm. um hey you want to go watch you know whatever show is on on Thursday night mm -hmm. right and just moving past it mm -hmm. but being able to be with them in their pain mm -hmm. I do deeply admire the work you do with that I think um as clinicians that um most people I know who do this for a living say there are some areas where they're like that work would be really hard for me, but this work I can do with no problem. I know not just tonight, but at other times when you and I have talked about it, I've been um, profoundly impacted by what an amazing surface you offer to people who otherwise might not have anyone to talk to. And I don't know that I could do that. I can do other things, but I don't know that I could do that the way you do. Um, and just how amazing, because otherwise people would suffer in isolation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons why I applied to be on the team. When I saw the ad in the newspaper, I thought, oh, how fantastic. We're getting this service in Cambridge. I can't believe it. How great for the women in our community. And I wanted to be part of the team because I thought it's just so crucial for people to come to hospital and to be believed and to be supported and to get the help they need right from the start, as opposed to some ER doctor or nurse who are too busy and don't have the time, don't have the skills to, to deal with them and be helpful. So mm -hmm. thank you. Yeah, really. It's a really crucial service. It, it honestly is. And it's amazing that you um, do it and you do it so well. You do it so compassionately and so empathically. And um, having had the opportunity to meet at least a couple of your, your teammates, I know that they do as well. And um, I love that. I love just thinking that if somebody is struggling, if someone's listening to this, um, that maybe hearing what to expect, the kinds of things you might say to them, the overall approach you take might give them the courage to, mm -hmm. to set aside the stigmas and the fear of judgments mm -hmm. and go get the treatment that they mm -hmm. deserve. Mm -hmm. um, That's definitely one of the, the important cornerstones of our program is we believe you. We have no judgment. Whatever happened is fine and we will listen to whatever it is and help you in whatever way you want. There is no judgment. Mm -hmm. And um, that has to be there for people to feel safe yeah. to come in and, and tell. And sometimes people will say, whatever I'm saying to you now, as awful as it is, there's more, but I just can't say it now. Right. And so that really gives us a clue as to how terrible it has been and how, what a big step it is for people to come forward. And we try to really honor that. As you say that, I, one of the things I think uh, that gets so under my skin when I hear people um, judging or you know applying these stigmas is that for whatever judgments outside people are putting on, most often the person is already judging themselves 10 times as harshly. They don't need you to pile on. They don't mm, need you to absolutely. add with that, right? Because mm -hmm. they're already raking themselves over the coals in every way they possibly can. And they have to live with it. They get no break from that, right? Mm -hmm. It's a nonstop kind of track in their head. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so to be able to go to a place where people aren't judging you and you can just 
you know, talk about what happened, get the services you need and decide, you know, as you go, which is also an important piece. Again, it's just like sexual assault, right? Like just because you started kissing somebody uh, doesn't mean that you want to be having intercourse with them. Just because somebody has come in to talk to you doesn't mean they want to be testifying in court three months later, right? Mm -hmm. And that you give them the freedom to decide, you know, what part of this do you need? What's going to help you heal? Mm -hmm. Um, What an incredibly responsive and in clinical terms, person-centered um, mm-hmm. approach you all take to that. Well, if someone wanted your support, how would they get in touch with you? If somebody's listening to this and they're, you know, I think I'm ready to talk to someone, they like the sound of what you have to say and like the approach that you take, how could they reach you? They could call me on uh, my private practice number, which is 519-242-4672. So that's my show for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Open Minds. I'd like to thank my editor, Craig, without whom these shows wouldn't be possible. If you've missed any part of this, or if you want to listen again or share with someone else, please visit my website at whatseatingyou.com. That's all one word, whatseatingyou.com, and click on the podcast link where you can find this and all previous shows. You can also find the show on the archives page at cfru.ca, or you can subscribe to Open Minds on iTunes and be notified whenever a new show is available. I would really love to hear what you liked or didn't like about today's show and welcome suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover in the future. Please send those to my email, which is openminds at cfru.ca. That's openminds with an S at cfru.ca. Please know, though, that I may not be able to respond to all emails personally, and that I definitely cannot respond to those asking for help or advice with a specific mental health problem. For those, I strongly encourage you to put aside your fear of stigma and see your doctor, try a therapist, visit the local emergency room, or call your nearest crisis hotline. And if you're concerned for someone around you, please try not to judge and instead encourage them to seek out the treatment they deserve. Remember, if you wouldn't hesitate to visit the dentist when your teeth are causing you pain, then you needn't hesitate to seek treatment when it's your brain that's causing you pain. I'm Candy McNeil. Please join me again next week here on Open Minds. (laughs) 